others almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close chest of you The power of Christ compels you people from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and if you dig into most cultures and civilizations of the past, you'll find that they have legends, stories, and rich mythologies that acknowledge beings from somewhere else occasionally interacting with us. From well-known fairy folklore and fairly fleshed-out pantheons of gods to shamans who keep their tribes safe from the spirits beyond the campfire's edge and college kids just trying to have a little fun on the weekends. There are many ways to realize reality is weirder than advertised in today's world, and exotic life forms are just beyond the baseline wavelength. Ask around and most people will know someone who knows someone who grew up in a so-called haunted house, played with the wrong Ouija board, or has that burned-in memory of waking up with something else in the room. But the longer we wrestle with the question of their existence, the longer it takes to get to the deeper questions of what they actually want. And when the typical testimony includes words and phrases like sexual fluid extraction, hybrid babies, energy harvesting, astral births, moon child rituals, soul-sucking devices, demon sex, and dream rape, seems like we're dealing with some sort of dark multidimensional predator on a mission to crack and compromise the components of life and the magic of creation itself. And wouldn't you know it, today's guest Nathaniel J. Gillis has made a name for himself talking about these very things, and the many years of research has brought him to circle around very similar conclusions. For the uninitiated, Nathaniel is an author, lecturer, and religious demonologist, and after being in the deliverance ministry for 15 years, Nathaniel felt called to bring his gifts and research to a more secular venue. For years, he has sought to redefine the nature of hauntings, ghosts, aliens, demons, and other experiences of high strangeness, and I salute him for it. So let's get the party started. The common coast-to-coast commentator, demonology demystifier, and dark entity agenda investigator, Nathaniel, welcome to the higher side. Man, it's a pleasure to be with you. I am such a fan of the show, and you threw all a, a lot of titles there, my friend. I hope I live up to whatever we're going to talk about, but you hit the nail on the head. I do believe it's interdimensional of some sort, and I know we're going to get into those case studies, but hello, higher side. Hello, Greg, and I'm just thankful to be with you guys today. Yeah, man. Thanks for taking the time. This is going to be a wild one. I'm excited for it because you do have some perspectives on these beings and their goals that are pretty unique. And I know you've told the story many times, but I understand that you grew up in a haunted house and had experiences that really fueled this lifelong investigation into what it was you saw or experienced. Is that right? Absolutely. That was my very first encounter with the phenomenon. I was eight years old. My parents moved into a new house. Actually, before we moved in, even the open house itself was full of manifestation. I witnessed a full-bodied apparition in what would become my future room. And that was my, like I said, my very first encounter with whatever we're dealing with. 
And once we moved in, the entity evolved in its pathology and it became a shadow figure. It just it manifested in various ways, but it was instrumental in getting me into this research and into this field. And since then, what I've been trying to do is trying to put these pieces together in a way that's meaningful and germane to others who are also pursuing this mystery. Yes, fair enough. And I find it really interesting that the way it usually goes is that when a person is curious about these things, they pretty much just put them in the box that their worldview allows for. Like if you're a materialist who thinks spirits are silly, then they must be visitors from another physical planet. If you're a Christian, then they're clearly demons. If you're Irish, then they're fairies and so on. And even though you're a demonologist, I often hear you using terms like race or predator or other terms that kind of get beyond the categorization that this sort of research often gets caught up in. Absolutely. I think that is detrimental. It's paramount in doing this research. And I'll tell you what happened to me that kind of got me out of that mode of thinking. Whatever I was experiencing at my house, my local church body was unable to give answers for. That's when I realized that even just Pentecostalism, or it doesn't really matter what denomination, many of them are much alike in the sense that if you experience something that doesn't fit in their blueprint, you're gaslighted, you're crazy, and never happened, you're lying. And, you know, what I realized very quickly was that I have two choices. Either I can stay in the dogma and abandon the data, or I can grow into the data and grow out of the dogma. I can't hold on to both. And in doing that, absolutely, the research led me to believe not just that I came up with it myself, it was the evidence that led me to believe that uh, we have compartmentalized the phenomenon by virtue of our religious traditions. And in doing so, we've kind of missed the larger behavioral patterns the phenomenon manifests upon its victims. Yes, behavioral patterns. That's exactly like what I wanted to talk to you about because it is kind of the thing that leads us to the uniqueness of your perspective. What behavioral patterns do you see in the cases that you look at? What are the commonalities that maybe overlap things we would consider to be spirits with things that we'd consider to be alien? I mean, there's a lot more overlap than people might realize, and that's where the clues are as to what these things even are and what they want, right? 100% correct, sir. 100% correct. I'll tell you this much. The behavioral patterns, plural, that I discovered, they're a lot like bloody footprints of the stone. You know, and then it doesn't really matter what alias the serial killer is using. If it's employing the same ritual technique, if it's employing the same belief systems, the same patterns, it's incumbent upon us to look at this and say, okay, no matter what face we try to place on the phenomenon, what is this really? And to answer your question specifically, the sexual pathology regarding these beings, it's been the same throughout millennia. It has not changed. Much of their victimology is the same. The rituals that they're performing are virtually the same. And so uh, that's why I figured, man, like, there's something really wrong here. This doesn't seem to be horns and bones, right? This doesn't seem to be some, and and forgive this term, it's not a derogatory term in any sense of the word, but it's not a Catholic demon, right? It's transcending that microcosm. Whatever it is, it has its own belief system, its own language preference, its own values, and potentially its own currency. And one of the highlights of my research that I'm trying to bring back around is their sexual pathology and their ability and desire to self-replicate by virtue of the missing fetus syndrome. That's one of the biggest 
key markers that has connected this phenomenon. Yeah, well, of course, we got to dig deeper into that self-replicating from the ghost fetus phenomenon. I've heard you say phantom, missing fetus. What's going on here? Well, if we go back into history somewhere, we can't really pinpoint when the first encounter occurred. But a woman was visited by an entity that appeared to her in the image of her husband. Now, we first get this, obviously, in Genesis 6 in the Holy Bible, but we also get in the Apocryphon of John, which is a Coptic manuscript preserved by Egyptian monks. And as far back as the late Iron Age, these people were witnessing the same phenomenon we're encountering today. Nothing has changed. But what we've allowed ourselves to do is fall into the trap of thinking that this is a new phenomenon. And I think here's the reason why I believe is because if we can say it's a new phenomenon and there's a new origin, it's a recent origin. And that's real easy up until you realize that, okay, if it's an ancient phenomenon, then it originated in antiquity. And so one of the highlights of their pathologies is to use masks of deception to manipulate us into doing whatever they want us to do. So in antiquity, it was the fact that, okay, you have a woman, she's in bed at night, and then an entity manifests to her. She thinks it's her husband. And then they copulate. She's inseminated with the fetus. I don't know how deep you want me to go. <laughs> There's some things as I deep can as say. we can. All as right. deep as we can. All Nothing's right. off limits. Sweet. Yeah, I couldn't talk about this in other shows sometimes. but uh, I know. This ain't terrestrial radio, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I appreciate it, brother. I appreciate it. So yeah, essentially the entity would manipulate the victim into, and I, I, again, I say this loosely because it's really not consent. We don't really know what's going on, but there seems to be this game played by the phenomenon to where it doesn't have total access to the female. Because if it did, right, it wouldn't have to play into a role. It would just do whatever it wants to do, go on about its business. But there is this role-playing aspect that my colleagues and I are looking at very carefully because it is, it's almost measuring beliefs to where I'm going to play this role for you. Do you believe I am who I am appearing to be? And then at that point of belief, now that entity steps fully into the role. And now it's almost like a covenant of consent, which I hate that word, but again, we're, we're lacking vocabulary at this point. But this sexual pathology is very rarely evolved throughout history. Like today, they're still appearing to women in the images of former lovers, yeah, the images of deceased husbands. And I, to the point now in my research, that I no longer believe that these are entities in and of themselves. I believe that these are not people. These are programs being employed by the phenomenon in order to garner our consent to do whatever they want to do with us. And so, the incubi, the debook phenomenon, we're going to cover those two. Again, I would stress we're dealing with programs, not just people. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. And I was going to bring up Whitley Strieber just because I think he is a great example of blurring this line because he got famous for interactions with the entities and the whole anal probe thing. And he got made yeah. fun of for that. And when he talked about it being of a sexual nature, people laughed, but he was always pretty clear that these visitors come to him and they take sexual fluids. Don't And now in his later years and after the passing of his wife, he very much is of the opinion, I believe he got it from her, that 
these entities have something to do with what we call death. Oh, yeah. So, again, it's like, here's that line of messing with the soul or consciousness versus the sexual fluids. These are kind of the same things. These are both mechanisms of life. The sperm hits the egg and then consciousness infuses with that. And then you have a spirit and a vessel. So you could see some being trying to unpack this, some being that's mystified or curious or envious of human creation. And so they're coming over here and they're like, well, one approach is that we can try to take the sperm and the eggs. Another approach is we can try to extract the soul from the body. And I think it makes sense that you don't have to say either or. These are mechanisms that both get to the same kind of thing if they're curious about it. Or I don't even really understand or or know how much they are just mystified by it or like how much they really know and are, are really able to use these tools, these fluids, these mechanisms to actually affect life. What do you think? Well, I think that in order for us to comprehend or even approach who, what, when, and where they are, you have to think outside of the box and outside of the intellectual coffin. Seeing that they've worn masks, there's very few things that we can point fingers at and say, okay, this is what we know for sure. One thing we do know for sure is that they have a better natural knowledge about our existence. I wish it was as easy. I mean, I used to think that, okay, you know, Dr. Clark Turner would often say that they would extract our consciousness and then manipulate it and then place it back into our bodies. Mm-hmm. But now what we're looking at is their pull of information. From where are they getting access to us? Not just the physical level, but the soulish dimension where they have actually simulated near-death experiences. Simulated them. Hmm. That freaks me out. There are certain things that freak me out. I mean, even me, when I get to the darker parts of the field, you know, it's like, ah, it's off. And that's what disturbs me, the access they have to us. Dr. Barry Fitzgerald was talking one day, and he, he mentioned something that I think is incredible. He says, you know, when we're doing EBP work, there are a lot of cases where before we could even ask the question, the EVP answers. Hmm. And his question is something that I echo because he's one of my favorite researchers in the world. How do they have that access? Right? I mean, if we're looking at what they know, they shouldn't know. They should not know when people are going to die. Yeah. Right? They just shouldn't. It, it feels weird. You know, they shouldn't know what kind of clothes people have died in. Let me put it to you this way. Like in the Las Vegas shooting, there was a woman that was shot in the head with her, she was with her family running away from the shots. She shot in the head and she vividly remembers being peeled out of her body and hovering over her body. Well, these beings seemingly have the same capabilities where they can pluck the soul out of the body and trigger what's called bilocation in their victims, where these people are witnessed two places at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think that their power source is disturbing. And and more than that, the way they're using their information against us, it's not just that they know, but they're incorporating that into the mask of deception they employ in many cases. Yeah. I mean, what I was trying to get at before is I guess my curiosity is, are they still in the research and development phase or are they deep into this agenda? Because it seems like wherever their origin is, somewhere non-physical, there is a mechanism of time functioning differently. 
you hear a lot of that with prophecy. People always think it's right around the corner and then it ends up being not even in their lifetime. And it's like sometimes you get the right information, but the timeline doesn't translate exactly right. Mm-hmm. So they've been doing this from our timeline a very, very long time. So you'd think they pretty much have it mapped out, but it also isn't native to them. So I think maybe there's still some curiosities from their side of things, but there's so much talk now about aliens because when people see a craft in the sky, craft to them equals pilot equals humanoid being from some other place. And you mentioned these things might be programs. When we start talking about technology and tools used by something that we're considering a spirit or a demon, that gets really weird. Like you start thinking about manufacturing and how a ship is getting created. I've heard you talk about implants as well. There's a physical technological little chip thing that might serve a purpose to them. How do you wrap your head around spirits or demons using technology? Well, I think that when we read of their history, their historical presence in time, you see that there were beings that I call them beings, but they had the disability of being. And in their disability of being, they employed technology to make up for what they lacked. If we get back into the implants, again, we're talking about technological necromancy here. Hmm. But I think that's major what we're dealing with. I think that is a behavioral pattern that many researchers will discover during the next decade. It is technological necromancy. Diana Walsh-Suka mentioned it on the Concrete Podcast, where some researchers and engineers believe that these are resurrection machines. So as far back as biblical antiquity in the late Iron Age, we see beings who were not just disembodied, but disincarnate, who were out of a body itself. And so what they were trying to do is employ technology and a self-replication program in order to preserve their existence. Now, it's not nuts and bolts or consciousness. A lot of people are already saying that. It's not nuding, guys, and you're going to listen to this and watch this. But it's not either or, it's both and. And more than that, I think we need to learn how to say that to say it more often because it's not either alien or demon, it's both and. And I would highly suggest to you and your listeners who I have all the respect for that it's possible we're dealing with an intelligence It's more demonic than a demon. It's more alien than an alien. It's something that has created these masks to facilitate its own existence, and it's hiding behind these masks. But having the disability of being, to be without being, a being, and so we're looking for is a species that uses the womb to self-replicate, not its consciousness. But if we're looking at disembodied consciousness from which the fallen angel hypothesis originates, demons, unclean spirits, then what we're looking at, again, are beings that are employing technology in order to facilitate their own existence. Now, do I believe that much, if not all, of the incubi phenomena of the group, that they're programs, I think the evidence suggests that once we get beyond the technology they're employing, does it make sense? It does. It does. And maybe what we view as technology is something that they can just conjure up because they have a mastery of the physical. Like maybe it's not like there's an assembly line on the other side of the spirit world where they're putting together crafts and 
having yeah. new models derived. And a lot of times these reports, they'll talk about these crafts when they really get into them, seeming more biological in nature than technological anyway. So right. who knows exactly what that stuff is, but talk to us about a couple of case studies that you think make for good examples of illustrating the goals of these beans and the different ways they try to go about it. Like if you were to dive into a case or two that checks a lot of these boxes that justifies the hypothesis we're talking about, yep. what would you say to people? Well, I would say that we have to expand our horizons. I often deal with abductionists who, because they only know abduction literature, if I mention a case study that I've had with incubi entities, this sounds like abductions. It's, they kind of overlap, not even realizing what's occurring. It's hilarious. It's like, now it's an incubi case. No, it's not. But when you're looking at overlapping case studies, there's one book I'm going to pull out, and I've tore this book up, man, because I love it. It'll help fit some pieces together for everybody. It's called Eros and Evil. Obviously, you can see how much I've destroyed it. <laughs> Eros and Evil by Ariel Masters. Here's one of his case studies. It's in witch era literature, and he talks about how some of these witches were being taken. I use that intentionally, being taken on demonic flights. <laughs> what? Well, you know, I thought this is a new phenomenon. Well, sorry. You know, it's new to people who... <laughs> or new researchers, but so these demonic flights included something very unique. The witch, number one, is basically abducted or kidnapped by what she thinks is a demon. The demon, in some cases, replaced her with an apparition or familiar spirit to where the husband wakes up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, he looks over, and there's Sally sleeping. But it's not Sally. Sally is with this entity. And so when Sally, I'm just going to use the name Sally, so forgive me if you know anybody named Sally. But these women, they get to this spot and they believe they're copulating with corpses and demons, like these actually manifest to them. They're performing the act of copulation. And all of a sudden, the frequency fuzzes out. Program stalls. And now these women are realizing that this is not a mountaintop. That's not a corpse. And that's most certainly not a demon. What they were looking at was a theatrical performance in which they were being poked and prodded by metallic objects. Hello, UFO abduction. And then even deeper and darker, perhaps, many of these objects were carved by someone or something to measure the shape of a man, if you know what I mean to the point that the phenomenon literally tailored an entire experience around their belief system and their religious tradition. But at the point of consummation, something occurred in the program to where these weren't actually people, right? It was technology being employed against these women. And it was some sort of simulation theory or in a way. But that's just one. I mean, if we get into case studies of my own that imply that it's not just technology, but it's a way of deception that they operate on. And I've had case studies where, like, I'll do a show before I do a show, they'll hear about it. So you'll have an influx of some of the people that I'm referring to and have case studies like mine. And one individual told me that she was in bed one night and her husband approached her from the left side of the bed who said she was induced to do a dream state 
she was in and out of it, she said. And next thing you know, her and her husband have a physical moment, I should say. And then afterwards, she starts looking at him. And she said, you know, at first it looked exactly like my husband of 25 years. She said, but then when she looked closer, there were certain facial features that did not belong to him. And that's when she realized this isn't him at all. It grinned at her, turned its head to the side, smiled, and then faded into this black smoke, flew out of the bedroom. Now, this is pervasive in the field. This is not limited to incubi encounters or the debug phenomenon. But what we're doing is we're reinterpreting an ancient phenomenon in a modern way. And those are some of the case studies that have led me to believe that there's a high measure of technology being employed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. The Eros and Evil book. I had a quote here that I got from a post you had on Instagram where Ariel Master says, authorities held that the offspring of unions with demons who survived early childhood often possessed such characteristics as hardiness and boldness, pride and wickedness. And then- they are likely to be exceptionally tall. It was also believed that infants seemingly born of demon-human intercourse were not real or authentically human. They were effigies or fantastic and used by the devil to deceive women and make them think they had given birth. This is kind of like your missing fetus syndrome term that you brought up. I mean, it's complex because when you say that people are somewhat replaced, like a husband has been replaced in his bed or has been taken elsewhere, it's like... Is their physical body taken? Is it Uh just their consciousness that's taken? And then a demon's consciousness is put in and use the husband's parts to copulate. Uh, That's kind of an odd thing to me. And also, like, when it's men versus women, you've said yourself, I believe, that you've had experiences where you woke up from a dreamlike state and felt like something was riding you uh, in a sexual way. It's like, okay, well... When we're talking about two sides of the physical veil, does semen get over there or is it better for the being to be the male part of the situation trying to get at the the human female? It's complex stuff. There's layers to uh, what all this is. Help us out. No doubt. No doubt. So the common question within demonology has always been where are they getting their seed, right? Do they have semen of their own that they're producing, or are they harvesting it, which already we're hitting on UFO abduction, mm-hmm. or are they harvesting it from males and then going and then incinerating women with it? I suggest that it's the latter. We've seen cases like that throughout all of history, even to the point that Montague Summers and Father Sinistre of Mino talked to witnesses who gave their personal testimony of working in graveyards and seeing these apparitional beings reanimating recently deceased men and then harvesting their excretions to the point. I told you it was going to get dark. I hate that it has to be this dark. Hey, let's get Um, raw. Sinistroy of Amina was a Franciscan priest and uh, he was collecting biological excretions left by these entities and they were discolored. Some of them were black, some of them were gray and green. And he and Montague Summers both agreed in, independently of each other that some of the very first men who were taken by whatever these beings are were recently deceased and that they were milking the carcasses 
of the dead to the point that it influenced our funerary rites, right? We have to bury them as soon as possible. Why? They believed that there were what we would consider to be vampires, right? Who would go in and, and biologically just extract things from that person. And so at first blush, it is necromancy. In a sense, it's necrophilia. It's it's kind of all, it's all there. But what's interesting to me though is okay, if it is their seed or if it is our seed, then why is it that even when we're mingling with the devil, that the offspring, they're tall, like really tall? That was a hiding note for me because when we're looking at hybridization and antiquity, we see the Genesis 6 narrative and we see their offspring as giants. So if it is just our seed, then I believe they are obviously having to genetically modify it to create the biological avatar that they wish to possess. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned them self-replicating, and if they're taking our seed and using human wombs, then where is the hybrid? You know, for the, the nature of hybrid suggests that one half of this is coming from somewhere else. Sometimes I think it might just be like the consciousness. I mean, if a demon possesses a man who then has sex with a woman, is that offspring different? Is it not necessarily the, the man whose consciousness was kicked out of the body for a little while? Right. Is there a connection between the sexual fluids and the womb and the consciousness of the human who's in it? 100%, 100%. So the Apocrypha of John, it talks about these beings that manifested to women in the image of the husband, and they took upon that appearance. And then at the moment of conception, they stared into the eyes of the victim, inseminated with the seed, and then changed its apparition to what it really looked like. Now, this is an obstructive tradition in uh, Mesopotamian literature. They believed at that time that whatever image the woman was looking on at the moment of conception, she will birth the material image of that man through her womb as a child. Hmm. Now, what's so interesting about this specific pathology is that the beings did not want to make a child that looked like the husband they're impersonating. Hmm. No, they wanted to make a literal, literally a biological avatar of whatever they themselves look like. Now, this gets back into the idea of a hybrid. The idea of a hybrid is almost calcified within the tradition of just being mixing DNA and stuff. I think you're on the right track because I'm of the same thought process that it was their seed, but the image of this entity and the consciousness of the entity that was in the fetus. Now, let me give you some very interesting case studies throughout history. Now, in the Debut phenomenon in the 16th century, what we call them divics, but essentially there was a movement in Safdi Israel, it's a province in Israel, where this group of people were trying to contact the deceased. And in doing so, they created their own rituals, they created their own traditions, and they had what's called the Doctrine of Gilgal, which they operated off of, but Here's what's really striking to me. They operated off of the belief that our intentions with them determine their intentions with us. Hmm. 
Ooh, you know, it's the, when I read that, I thought, see, <laughs> and then suddenly what started happening was women were going to bed at night, even men were going to bed at night and beings were manifesting to them in their dreams. Some men were quoted as saying, okay, since that dream, I met a being that I'm being told is my son. This is an incubated sucked by literature. And then the young man will say things like, I'm a virgin. Hmm. Where did this thing come from, right? Even deeper and darker, perhaps, women were being accosted by entities in these dream states. When they woke up the next day, they shrugged it off, whatever. It was a bad dream, no big deal. They go to work and they look down and they have ligature marks on their wrists and ankles. They have scarifications, skin anomalies that are manifesting on their bodies that directly correlate with the nightmare they thought they had. Hmm. What we're dealing with, again, is they induce people in the dream states. They hack our belief systems. They do what they want. But even more than that, these women started to become possessed by the entity that had assaulted them. So this is the point in my lecture where I tell people that possession to us is pregnancy to them. Mm. It's being pregnant with consciousness. That's the game they play. And so these women became possessed by the entity that assaulted them, and then they present themselves to the exorcist. The exorcist's job is to interrogate the entity. Who are you? What are you doing here? Why did you choose this victim? And, and on and on. Well, one day, these beings, their pathology evolved from just merely possessing women. Now it merged into the incubi accounts and <laughs> also into the missing fetus syndrome. Because now these women were showing up to church or showing up to the temple synagogue, and now they have a fetus in their womb. And at first blush, these demonologists, they called all the physicians together and said, first of all, what is going on here? She's definitely possessed, but there's a fetus in her. And so they performed what's called the lavouche. See, this is very dark stuff that very few people are talking about. But they performed the lavouche, and the lavouche method was to press the thumb on the wrists of the woman, and in doing so, they felt two heartbeats in one body, two pulses in the same body. And so their hypothesis is still startling to this day. They asked the question, is this woman possessed by the entity or pregnant with it? Hmm. And being pregnant with it, what they did is they performed an exorcism. Now, wouldn't you know, when the phenomenon retracted the consciousness, they also took the fetus itself. Hmm. And so my hypothesis at this current time is that we've been focusing so much on the fetal presence instead of the consciousness that they're placing inside of it. And that leads me to believe that that is the true hybrid, not just the DNA aspect, but the fact that they will take babies and they'll place their own consciousness in it as a self-replication method. Damn, I mean, <laughs> very interesting. I use that term dream rape in the intro because it does seem like I don't know if the dream world is exactly the spirit world or if that's a, a separate dimension, but they seem to be able to commune with us on this plane and things that actually occur there 
can affect us physically. I mean, we've all seen scenes in movies where the mask is a good example where he thinks he's making out with Cameron Diaz and then she's licking the side of his face and he wakes up and it's a dog licking the side of his face. It's his dog. So also we've probably had the phenomenon of our alarm going off and it goes off in the dream. And then we slowly realize, Oh, this is a dream. I'm sleeping and my alarm's going off and I got to get ready for work. So right. sounds and things touching us in the physical while we're asleep can project themselves kind of onto that dream state. And so there's a mechanism there, even without entities. So if you fold entities in, they can probably play with those mechanisms and manipulate us even more than we otherwise would be. 100%. And that's a great point that you bring up. Now, for those who haven't heard my story, mind if I go and tell it about, you know, that entity that manifested to me. Tell it. Very strange. Because at the time, I wasn't even in the field. Like, I wasn't doing lectures or podcasts or anything. I was doing hard research, you know, like deep, deep stuff. So, one night I get off of work. At the time, I was working in a factory. I get off work. I was working second shift. Friday night, you know how it is, man. You just probably want to grab a beer or something, take a hot shower, watch Sports Center or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. And so, I'm there in bed, and my fiance is already asleep. It's Friday night. I go to bed and I'm immediately in this dream. And I mean, I hit hard, just instantly hard. And I knew that it wasn't just a usual dream. There was something, I don't say prophetic. I think there was something profound about it. It felt different. And in this dream, there is this female shadow figure. It's features. The hair is going down. And it looked identical to my fiance. Like if you took her, put her in a dark room, turn the light off, some, hey, your eyes adjust. You don't see feature features, but you see the outline. So I thought it was my ex. And this entity had straddled me. And so in the dream, I'm trying to get her off of me, like trying to push her off. And while I'm doing this, I wake myself up. And to my astonishment, the entity was not just in my dream. The entity was literally on top of me. Yet I'm hitting my ex. Not hard, not abusively, <laughs> mind you. But I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm, I won't mention your name, but I'm asking her, like, is that you? Where are you? Is that you? Because my eyes are still adjusting. And finally, she wakes up, looks up, and says, what is that? And when that happened, this entity took one leg, pulled it over, and just disappeared in the darkness. So, in antiquity, we would call these beings dream demons. But that was our attempt to place that face on the phenomenon. But in dream demons, in dream demonology, these beings would descend down, especially at nighttime, induce their victims into dream states. And here's a key component. They would stare into the eyes of their victims. Now, I'm not the only one speaking about that. Obviously, Bud Hopkins, Dr. Cole Turner, David Jacobs, other abductionists have encountered that phenomenon. But I would like to suggest something that would give us more clarity and context to what's occurring. Behind our eyes, there is the frontal media orbital cortex. That is the part of our brain that tells us whether or not what we're experiencing is real. So it's not just the hypothesis of David Jacobs, which I love. 
It's not just that they're looking into our eyes to gain some eye contact. No. I believe, again, they're hacking our own brain. It's like when we go to movies and we've got surround sound, the chair we're sitting in is vibrating. It's that part of our brain that determines whether or not what we're looking at is actually occurring to us. So this has been occurring for millennia, but I think, again, that what we're doing right now is we're applying a modern interpretation to something that's been around forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And speaking of that modern interpretation, obviously we have congressional hearings and the David Grush mm -hmm. stuff and all these military men telling us about their experiences. And it is all framed in this very militaristic complex. I'm sure the industrial complex is going to get a nice fat check soon here to deal with all this. Oh, yeah. But... We do know from Nick Redfern's book, Final Events, which I know you've talked about before, Ew. there was a contingency, probably still is, within the government, the big machine, that concludes very differently and is more on the page that you're on, which is that this is an ancient thing and a spiritual religious context is a lot more accurate than a sci-fi one. I actually saw a post from Nick recently where... He said he wanted to write the sequel to Final Events, but the typical publishers he has relationships with have said no. So that's interesting because it's his most popular book, I would say. No. He would make a lot of money, but for some reason, the publishers don't want to milk that cow. And he <laughs> said he's going to do it on his own. So I'm interested in exactly what he has to add to the stack there. Isn't but we can say that at least a portion of the government knows that it's a red herring to put this in a sci-fi type of context. Mm -hmm. And the Collins elite were very interested in pursuing things a different way. For those who aren't familiar, maybe talk to us a little bit about the Collins elite and how far that went and your, just your thoughts on their general approach. So check us out. So there was a, a group within the Department of Defense that were deeply religious, very educated. And many of them were engineers, physicists. And so what they were trying to do is to look at the demonological connections with UFO abductions and ufology. And so they would travel around. It was very interesting to me when I read this book because I'm thinking, okay, what is their approach, right? How do they even investigate? That was very interesting. How would a physicist that's religious, how would they interview a person with the likes of Civil League? It made no sense to me. But what they were doing is they were looking at out-of-body experiences and the possibility that what we're dealing with is a mechanism that steals souls. That was their reigning, I don't know if it still is, we have to look at his upcoming book, that was their reigning hypothesis, was that these beings not only simulate near-death experiences, but these beings have actually orchestrated murders, orchestrated killings. And I won't use the S word, but even that to take things from people and to take them from their own selves. And so their interests, they went to different religious scholars, different demonologists, different spiritualists. My main focus on their research consisted of Sybil Now, for those who aren't familiar with her, she considered herself to be a white witch. And she was a contemporary to Aleister Crowley. And so many times when she lived in the UK, Crowley would, would show up at her cottage light candles, perform rituals, and talk to her about his research. 
Well, at one point in her life, she moved to Los Angeles, which gave the Coens a little more access to her. She's just right around the corner. We don't have to go across the pond. So sure enough, one day, these physicists from the Department of Defense knock on her door. Hey, settle. Got some free time. Sure. They go into her kitchen. They sit down at her dinner table and they start asking her questions. What do you think these beings are that Alistair Crowley contacted? Where are they coming from? And is there a possibility that you yourself can contact them as a channeler? I'll try. And so sure it was. She goes into her trance work and the entity manifested through her. But when it did, it wasn't normal. It was, what is this? <laughs> what is this? And so the entity manifests through her. It begins to address the people in the room. They ask the age-old question, are you an extraterrestrial? The entity began to scoff at them and mock them verbally, laughed at them, told them that, of course, we're not extraterrestrial. That's just our newest deception. Okay. <laughs> Masks. But their work also, I mean, I don't know how much I'm going to get into this, but they were working with a guy named, I think his name was Paul Garrett. Mm -hmm. And Paul Garrett, yeah, had a, an out-of-body experience, near-death experience, I believe, and he witnessed these silver metallic objects hovering over people and then doing something to these individuals to where a ball of light would leave their body and it would go up into this UAP. That's not abnormal, even in abduction accounts. Betty Luca witnessed one of these entities, literally, it was almost like a morgue. There are bodies everywhere, and they would take their hand and hover, move it over the bodies, and then consciousness or orbs, not specks of dust, even though some of those orbs are, but an actual ball of light would ascend out of their bodies and into whatever we're dealing with. But that was their sole pursuit, was trying to link these beings to ancient demons. Now, my theory and hypothesis is a little bit different than theirs. Their belief is that these are horns and hips. These are demons. Like, they are demons. They're not just masking themselves as demons. They are, in fact, demons. My hypothesis is rooted in the idea that we're dealing with a singular intelligence that has used demonology as a mask, just as it's using the ET hypothesis as one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's wise to conclude that. You could throw in fairies as another lens that it is used to let us believe that's what it is when really its true nature is hidden. And we can come back to that thing of like uh, what their core goal is. Do you think it's focused on consciousness or you say self-replicating? Is that really their their main function? You would say humanity's main function is to procreate and replicate. Right. Is that their primary goal, or do they want to do something more to humanity? Are they trying to make hybrids, or are they just trying to continue their own kind? <laughs> well, when we get into these abduction accounts, even in antiquity, there's something that we see it's glaringly obvious. There is a control mechanism being employed by the phenomenon. If you get too close, it will correct you. If you see too much beyond the veil, it will correct. It will evolve in order to evade. Mm. It evolves. Now, again, this speaks of it, not a program, something that is hyper-intelligent, hyper-invasive. 
even more than that, when we get into accounts of them producing string memories, we saw that in the 16th century with some of these possession accounts where the victims didn't quite know what to remember. Was that real or is this real? Was I really assaulted or was this just a figment of my imagination? Going deeper here, when we're looking at what they're wanting us to remember, we have to pay attention to what they're wanting us to forget. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, at this point, like it's like Dr. Kohler Turner said, that there are very few behavioral patterns that we know for sure. Everything else is murky. I mentioned this last night on, on Coast. Uh, Dr. Kohler Turner had an experiencer who was out at a picnic, I believe, and she witnessed this UFO, UAP, hovering over a house across the street. In her mind, she vividly remembered taking binoculars, giving it to her friends. Check it out. Look, look. Going into the house, unboxing her new telescope, mounting it on the deck, showing her friends. And she said, here's the problem. I don't even own binoculars. <laughs> she said, I woke up the next day and I had to call my friend because I'm like, okay, didn't you remember? What we're looking at through a telescope. Remember, yeah. Well, my telescope hasn't left the box it came in. It's still in plastic. So these are the things they're wanting us to remember. I'm after what they're wanting us to forget because I believe those, those aspects of the phenomenon are the very keys that unlock the door, not just to them, but to us and to our own potential as a species. Yeah, I mean, that's super fascinating. It makes me think about some psychologists out there that are taking a different approach to mental health and looking at entity attachments. And when it gets into memory, it seems like people are able to have multiple entity attachments and they forget that when they were younger, they might have made a deal like, hey, if I can get this girl to like me, I will <laughs> do what you want or just something right. like these little things that kids say. They do matter. Like, it sounds like people are coming to the conclusion that these are real agreements. If you put it out there in the universe, an entity will step forward and say, I got you, buddy. Oh, and yeah. years later, it might still be embedded in your subconscious somewhere. So I think that's got to be coming into play. It seems that people can unknowingly, unconsciously have multiple entities attached to them. I don't know if they're feeding I don't know if they're like barnacles on a whale exactly, like what the entity gets out of that, but that's a mechanism too, like of getting inside of someone's being and and living there without their knowledge for years. Yeah, absolutely. It's both symbiotic and embryotic, if you will. <laughs> you know, it wants to live inside and to possess. So have you ever heard of the Moffat case, Deborah Moffat? Uh, doesn't sound familiar right off the bat. So check this out. This deals with the occult, but the Moffat family owned three different houses in a cul-de-sac. And they rented out two of them. That's nice. Yeah, it's a pretty cool <laughs> setup. But they all live in one house. Well, they had a housekeeper who would come in and clean all the rentals, including their house. And this particular individual, she performed the Santeria ritual. And she botched it. So I don't want people saying, okay, I hate Santeria. What I'm saying is she botched it. Hmm. And she messed up. Maybe it was the utterance, the incantation, the verbiage. I don't know. The diction. I don't know. 
She didn't either, but she said that in the middle of it, she said something went wrong. And when she did, there was this ball of light that appeared in the room and it chased her out of the house. And so she went to the family, was apologizing. You know, she said, okay, I heard that the mother was sick and I was just trying to perform a ritual to heal her. Now this gets into something that I'm going to ask us to entertain, right? I'm saying we have to completely commit belief here, but let's entertain this. Sure. Deborah Moffat Zinn says, but a week later, she wakes up in the morning, gets ready for work, goes to the bathroom, looks at the mirror, and something had taken soap and written on the mirror. Talk to me, is what it said. Talk to me. Wipes it off, goes to work. She's like, I'm not talking to what, what the... Anyway, so she comes back. Again, the entity wrote on the mirror. Talk to me. Talk to me. So she has all of this, and this is all documented. She has photography. I think she met with Lorraine Warren and other researchers about it. But anyways, come to find out, this entity had used that mortal portal. And this is what it said to her. Hundreds of years ago, your mother's soul was promised to me by virtue of sacrifice. And now I want you to perform the sacrifice. And so it gives her a written note how to perform the blood ritual what to use, when to perform it, and it goes on and on. Now, I'm going to get into some of the documentation because it's hard to believe. But if we're getting into the idea that at least some of these beings are knowledgeable about incantations, and they actually respond to them, then what are we really dealing with here? Even in biblical antiquity, with the teraphim, which is the modern-day implant, they would carve incantations and names of spirits into metal hmm. and implant it into either heads, they're called talking heads, or actual living people. And the consciousness that merged with the matter, memory within the matter, stepped into that body and began to operate it like it's its own. But there is this technological necromancy present. There is this knowledge of esotericism here that on their part that I don't think we can ignore. What kind of an extraterrestrial would answer incantations from a problem in the mage? Right. What are we dealing with here? And I have this lecture that I do that I talk about, okay, who's conjuring the conjurer? Are we really conjuring them or have they conjured us? And in asking that question, I tell the story about the shortest story ever told, the shortest horror story. You know, the last man on earth was alone in his house, and there came a knock on the door. <laughs> right? It's not us. I love the term mortal portal. That's a good one. And it kind of gets back to that manufacturing consent sort of thing. It's like, did you decide to pick up this grimoire? Because you thought it was interesting, or did this grimoire, did this bean make this book catch your attention? And thus, oh, yeah. you open it up, you flip the page 56. Why 56? This bean might be playing you like a puppet the whole time, getting you to dial its number. Yes, yes. And then it can't respond until that number is dialed, perhaps. I mean, you are well known for saying... The reason they're playing by different rules is because they're playing a different game. 
I'm curious if you could in any way map out the rules of that oh, game. I've heard you talk about the open vessel law. There seems to be yeah. some kind of uh, rules to certain demonic interaction. What are the rules to their game? Oh, my God. Well, let me take a step back and go on a micro level here. When I realized that there were rules that we were given and we were told that they play by. If they're devils, you know, they, they're almost all Catholic, obviously. And so they all have this own, they're all in this one religious tradition. It's not true. They have their own language preference, their own belief systems, and their own memories. They encase their own currency, their own values. They're playing by different rules because they're playing a different game. The game is obviously using deception. Now, do I know what the end result is? I don't. I'll be honest with you. I'm not like one of those people who, you know, have an answer for everything. I wish I did. But when we're getting down to some of the rules that they follow in the, I think it was the 17th century, there was a case study where a woman was accosted by one of these beings. And when the priest interrogated it, he said that we are outlawed. We are forbidden to touch her unless she has, I think it was unless she had been intimate with somebody and then that opened the door for them to say, okay, now we can go. It doesn't make sense to me. Again, now getting back to the rules that they play by, we have to understand something. This is a key component in the phenomenon. Much of what we're dealing with is propaganda by them. Much of what we're dealing with, even the rules that they told us they follow, they don't follow. <laughs> sure. Now, here's what disturbs me with the CE5 movement. We've created rules that they must follow. If they're not going to follow their rules, what makes us think they're going to follow ours? Right. Nonsense. Forgive me for saying that. Absolute nonsense. Here's why. Okay, draw a circle. I'll stay inside the circle. Yeah, to beat the crap out of somebody. Sure. Right? At a certain point, we've got to realize that this onion is layered. And truthfully, by the time we peeled it enough to realize, okay, this is where they are, that's where they were. They have changed and they've evolved in order to evade us. But yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, if they're not playing by their rules, they literally gave us these rules and said, hey, we'll follow them. And they don't. Right. It's troubling. <laughs> it is troubling. I think some people have the idea that the rules are set by God. And so they're oh, immutable yeah. and unbreakable and you have to invite the demon in for it to be able to even mess with you at all. There's a bit of comfort in that. But then, of course, sometimes the demons, they show up in the most innocent form, like a, a, oh. a kid at the door. And then you let them in yeah. and now you're completely fucked. So <laughs> they, they have ways of skirting the rules. You know, we yeah. men mentioned consent at the beginning and like consent's a little bit of a, a fuzzy thing because you can manipulate that consent. If anyone knows about Neil Strauss's book, The Game, which is just about lame guys figuring out the code to look cool to women and Correct. through repetition and going over it again and again, they developed a system for betting women. So did those women consent? Sure, they did. But, but they were manipulated by someone being disingenuous. Correct. And you could say spirits operate the same way. They, even if they need to get consent, even if that's a rule of the game, 
they get it in these roundabout, disingenuous ways, it seems. Right. And for those who are going to listen, forgive me for even using the word consent. And I, I know I'm the one that first brought it up. I think, again, that when we're dealing with the phenomenon, we're still groping for better vocabulary. We really are. You know, George asked me last night, are you a demonologist? What's demonologist? I don't know. What is a demon? Right. It gets weird. <laughs> if I can't determine what a demon is, how can I, you know, the truth is, you know, this is where my research started and that's how I'm mostly known. So that's what I have to use as a working title. But deception is prevalent. Even Dr. Culler Turner had a case study of Ted Rice. Ted Rice is with his grandmother. These beings abducted both him and his grandmother. And this hybrid entity tried to mate with the grandmother. Grandma, she's like, no. She's like, I've only been into it with one minute. Again, you see the behavioral pattern. All the way from the late iron age. Right? Sorry to harp on that. So yeah, so I've only known one man, and that's my husband, but he's been deceased now for years. Oh, I got something for you. <laughs> from the shadows emerges her husband. Mm. Where are they pulling? So there's only a handful of options here that really make sense. Either they have access to the internet and they could just or they're literally in real time plucking images and beliefs from our minds. Yeah, that's most likely to me. Exactly. Masking themselves in our memories. Veiling themselves in our belief systems. And potentially them being the orchestrators, the designers of certain belief systems in which they would hide behind that matters. And of course, you're going to let me do what I want to do because I'm an angel, all right? <laughs> so as we start wrapping up, I just wanted to ask you more about the irons you have in the fire. Your bio mentioned being the founder of preternatural epiphenomenal philosophy. I mean, how is that defined? Are there groups? Can people join? What's the deal there? <laughs> Man, that's an old bio. But, um, no, I'll tell you what. Early on in my research and kept coming against an intellectual wall. I struggled with it for years. And the idea it was rooted in being in a pool of water and someone enters the pool on the other side, goes down the stairs, the steps, and you feel the wake of the water. And so a lot of people in the paranormal community, they'll measure the wake thinking that I'm measuring the person in the water. And so, again, that's what's called epiphenomenon, where it's a secondary consequence. It's something that happens after something happens. And it's not just that we're studying it, but we're using improper definitions. Well, that's a demon, of course. It's the way. It's not the demon. Right? And in many cases, the phenomenon will use that secondary presence as a mask. That way you won't truly be monitoring and documenting and researching the entity that is in the pool. And so in many ways, we've gotten excited about it, right? Oh, I felt this, or I saw an apparition or something. But we do we really know if that's the entity? Or is it something that it's projecting in front of itself to capture our imagination? First of all, does that make sense? It makes sense. Okay, <laughs> let me move deeper. Here's why. Because I've worked with people in ontology where the apparition's here, but the orb is ahead of it or it's behind it. And so the apparition's not really the entity. 
It's a projection of the entity. And so we're sitting there capturing a projection or like I said, the wake in the water, the ripples that it's creating around it. And then we're documenting that, giving a face to that phenomenon. And then we've created an entire movement, right? It's a field of research for a hundred next months. No, it's really just a byproduct of whatever's there. And we've seen that even with Origen, one of the church fathers, he was asked why it is that when demons manifest, there is a cold front. And his theory was it's because that they're taking energy out of the air in order to manifest. But what we've been doing is monitoring and documenting the cold front, not realizing that there's an entire entity over there. <laughs> yeah, a big cold front could require a big entity. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It even makes me think about Bigfoot. When I talk to people about that, they will bring up the fact that, well, a lot of times Bigfoot is spotted next to an orb. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe the orb is the technology that creates the projection. Absolutely. If you look into a projector's lens, it looks a lot like a glowing orb. I mean, I don't know what technology they're using, but we do often, I think, get caught up on the facades, the presentations. We never do see the projectionist or the director behind the scenes. I think that's absolutely true. And without a real concept of the environment without a full mapping of all the layers. What is the dream world exactly? What is the mm -hmm. spirit world? How many dimensions are there without knowing all that and knowing exactly what consciousness is? We'll never unravel it exactly, but that means we'll <laughs> both be employed for a long time. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> in, in terms of people being inspired to dig deeper or follow your work more closely. You've got one book out, another in pre-order status. Right. I think your website is down. Well, talk to us about, <laughs> you know, if they want to follow up with you, what should they do? Where should they go? Well, on that social media, my website hasn't been active in years. I got tired of it. I'm all over social media. I was lecturing, researching, so it's not active. But I will give you guys some book references here. First of all, Spirit Possession in Judaism, Cases in Context from the Middle Ages to the Present. Ooh, yeah, I got that one. Obviously, Eros and Evil, Ariel Masters. Another one called Between Two Worlds by C.H. or J.H. Chavez, I think his name is. I probably murdered that last name, so forgive me. But this is about Spirit Possession in Judaism. This is what will connect us to the Missy Fetus Syndrome. In modernity, it proves a lot of things, unfortunately. but. To follow me, you can follow up my YouTube page. I put out videos about my current research. I'm all over social media. I'm not on Twitter. I hate Twitter. But yeah, you can find me on Facebook. I've shown I've dated myself at this point. Facebook and Instagram. But that's how you guys can connect. Right on. Very cool. Well, I do enjoy trying to unpack these things. I've seen behind the veil enough to know that there are non-human intelligences as brief as those peaks were. So when you comb over encounters and you start to find a through line that goes through our sci-fi era, back through the religious era and all the way, and the same sort of thing starts to be happening, well, you can start to piece together an agenda and try to figure out what this thing is. And I think that you are closer than most. So wow, I appreciate your time. Greg, yeah, I mean, come on, bro. I gave him $20 for him to say that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> if we're comparing to ufologists like Dr. Stephen Greer, then I got to 
obviously say that you're further down the chain than that. Oh, and that's where a lot of people are these days. Dude, I appreciate it, man. I'm such a fan. So, uh, and, and it comes from my heart, dude. I, uh, I just pour myself into the research. Not to say that everything I believe is right. I'm not saying that at all. I'm sure there are some loose ends that I could tie up, but it's all about the data. The dogma has killed us. Mm-hmm. The data is what's going to save us. Cheers to that. Yes, we all have hands on the elephant, but I think your hands are on the more important pieces that maybe help us get a little bit further into what the mystery is. So thanks for breaking it all down for us. Thank you for having me on, Greg. It's been a pleasure, man. Likewise. Take care. Praise be to he, Nathaniel Gillis, holding our hand on a nice walk through the darkness. I liked it a lot, and this was a hard one to name. So many provocative terms I could have used. Demonic agenda, cracking the life code, demonic consciousness colonization, technological necromancy, demon-alien interface, demonic hybrids, co-opting consciousness, hijacking human creation, and demonic self-replication. I'm sure I missed a couple, but those are the things I jotted down as we were cruising along. So as far as terms go, A+. But I do, in all seriousness, think this is a more accurate paradigm for the greys rather than planet hoppers. I know there's an element of us looking back to a more religious age and a tendency to frame things up in that religious context, but I think there's a lot of residue and aspects of that you could cut off and just look at this pretty secularly and get even closer to an accurate paradigm. And, you know, the alien thing is so hot right now, and just my opinion here doesn't mean that we still don't have plenty of guests who consider these things aliens. And I still keep an open mind, but I just like to use the wrap-ups to say when I think someone is hovering a little more over the target for me personally. But who knows? I don't have experiences with the Greys, so this is all guesswork. And if you disagree with me on my conclusions, it doesn't really matter too much, as long as I still cover the spread. And you can just stop listening before my bullshit ending. (laughs) I will say it was also nice that we synchronistically ended up with a new cover. For the theme song to start the day with, I was actually trying to find something else entirely in my inbox, and just by putting in the search terms, I stumbled across this email from 2018 where someone decided they wanted to cover the song, and I said, what the hell, and I listened to it, and I liked it, and I don't think I'd heard it before. And in the email, they asked to remain anonymous, so there's that, but not bad. I also thought, It fit the vibe for this kind of episode. So I'll put it in rotation. Also, this was the first episode where I actually recorded the video, something people have been asking me to do for years, and I've resisted. It's not hard to do. All the platforms I use can easily record the video too. But as I've said before, because of the editing, I don't want to put out a video version of an episode with a bunch of jump cuts in it. I don't think video adds as much to the experience as the good edit does. I've thought this through. But the bigger factor anyways is that when you commit to video, you're limited to video platforms, of which there are significantly less, and the big one, YouTube, already has me on my last warning. 
But then it hit me that I could just put out long form clips that are YouTube safe parts of the interview. And it might also be good free marketing. And if I use occasional clips from the plus portion, I'm sure that goes double. So let it be known from this episode forward, the YouTube channel and social media accounts will be putting up a few video clips if you're interested in that kind of peek behind the curtain. And we can have the best of both worlds. But I thought we covered a lot of interesting material today. Nathaniel has really dedicated himself to this space. I think it's right to say these beans are trying to jailbreak the code of life, whatever they are. And if you keep that broad, then you can fold in different approaches that they might take. Abduction, extracting sexual fluids, attempting to make hybrids, but also possession and trying to get at us through dreams and sleep, messing with the soul and having some of these experiencer accounts involve dead relatives or experiences in the light body and angles that sound like they're coming at this through death or a soul aspect rather than a sexual one. When you fold it all in, it does seem like the common thread is angles and approaches to hijacking human life. Maybe they are just jealous of our abilities to live in the physical and they just want to commandeer us. An analogy might be how humans have noticed that salamanders can regenerate most parts of their body, including limbs, parts of their spine. And even if you cut off a piece of a salamander's heart, it can grow back. So we see this ability and you know there are labs all over the place slicing and dicing these little guys trying to figure out how it's done so that we can harness that ability for humanity or to be more specific, Big Pharma's profits. But from the salamander perspective, it matches pretty well to our own abduction experiences. And the salamanders are probably thinking, hey, I don't even know what you want from me. I'm not sure how I do this thing that you seem to be trying to figure out. It's just how I am. It makes sense, right? The beans are trying to crack a different mechanism, but the rest of it sounds like a good match, I would say. Anyway, if you liked the first hour, definitely dive headfirst into the second. Why deprive yourself when $8 means so little? Today, we got into unpacking the power and use of religious symbols, the buzzing, chirping language of these beans, the common thread that they tend to retreat when they're detected. I told my latest man on the street story from someone who saw my car. We got into Malachi Martin's model for a perfect possession. Nathaniel went deeper into the soul-skin connection, and we got into what the church establishment might know about such things. Creepy stuff, but lots of food for thought. As always, we are just action-packed and sponsorship-free. And if you only hear the free first-hour version of the show, you miss pretty much 60% of the good stuff, because the beginning is just us warming up anyway. So help me help you. Sign up right in your show notes or at thehiresidechats.com. With this one, I was pretty intentional with wanting to fit the Collins Elite into the first hour because I think that's Nick Redfern's best work. And it's a really great crossover between conspiracy and this demonic approach to the big mystery. It was actually our guy Gordon who showed me that post of Nick's talking about coming out with a part two 
despite no publisher wanting to touch it. And that's kind of interesting. I look forward to that. Also, speaking of Gordon, we did do another episode of Rune Soup together that is a top 10 book list. This one, we both covered our top 10 health and wellness, true health, healing kinds of books. All the terms we might want to say besides alternative medicine or alternative health. Because allopathic medicine is the true alternative when you have a global and timeless perspective, right? But that was a lot of fun. We had totally different approaches, and many of his books were new to me, and I think you'll enjoy it. And sticking with the lists theme, you probably know Mark from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Well, he heard these top 10 list shows I've been doing with Gordon, and he wanted me to come on to do a list of my and his favorite 40 in events. And that was great. That might be one of the best interviews I've done. I just was really happy with myself. I came off there thinking, wow, I didn't stumble around too much. And everything I think I said was kind of interesting. I pulled out some stories most people are going to know. And I pulled out some things that I'm pretty sure no one has heard before. Just because, at least in one case, I pulled some stuff from a very obscure Reader's Digest book that I own. So if you want more me, for God knows what reason, there are two places to get it. But that said, let's also look at the meetup calendar before I get out of here, as we tend to do. As you know, that is always found at HiresideMeetups.com. And coming up, August 20th, there's a casual hang in Ventura, California, August 25th. There is one in Crescent City, California. I hope neither of those two are disrupted by Hurricane Hillary. How ironic that I just moved to Florida worrying about the potential for hurricanes. And within about 90 days of me leaving the West Coast, they have their first hurricane in 80 years. Interesting stuff. September, we got High Springs, Florida, the High Springs Brewing Company. They do a recurring event. We have September 14th, Los Angeles, California at the Flame International Restaurant, another recurring event. September 16th, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. September 22nd, Alamos, Colorado. September 30th, Columbia, Missouri, my old stomping grounds. And wow, the description says they are actually putting this on the no agenda calendar too. So that should be packed. I think there'll be more no agenda listeners there than THC listeners, but there's a good amount of overlap, I think. If you happen to be in Columbia, Missouri, I would say check that out. And I'm all for getting other shows involved with the meetup calendar. Not every show has to build their own structure for this. Just hop on and use ours. I don't care. No Agenda, of course, is where this whole idea came from. They got their own thing going on, and they've been doing it for very long. And their listeners love it. They're very active with these meetups. I recently went to one myself. But we will end it there. Treat yourself if you like the sorts of topics and wide range of things we get into, and you don't have a lot of local outlets for conversation. Come meet some people on these grounds. As you heard, clearly there are some areas where they're having these events on a recurring basis. 
Love to see it. The next time we have some big wild lockdown or something, those people will at least have a few local friends that are all on the same page. And I consider that important stuff. Hard to support and build local like-minded networks when you don't reach out to anybody. But hey, that's on you. I just provide the opportunity. And on that note, I'm going to call it in. Big thanks to Nathaniel. Tell him you enjoyed it if you did. And I'll catch you next time. I've done my part. Your move, multidimensional demons, paranormal predators, and hijackers of the mortal portal. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep It might be a pattern you've been through before mm -hmm. Or you might have those screen memories Darling, wait till we get some proof The highest side